Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Today is the day. Come on, phone ring. <gasps> it's me. I knew you'd call. Mom, you've got to get off the line. It's MacArthur Genius Grant Day. They could be calling me right now. Yeah, they'd probably leave a message or call back, but who knows? Maybe they just move on to the next genius and you never hear from them again. I can't take that chance. I'm hanging up, Mom. Did you just hang up on your own mother? Yes, and I'll make it up to her, but today is MacArthur Genius Grant Day, and I've spent the last five years demonstrating excellence in behavioral economics, puppetry, stop-motion animation, paleobotomy, material science. My entire life represents a quantitative analysis and averaging of the fields that catch the attention of MacArthur nominees. Yeah, I don't think that's the way it works. Yes, it is, but... Even if it isn't, don't you see? My work in behavioral economics, puppetry, stop-motion animation, paleobotany, material science, even though it's never borne any fruit, can also be understood as a kind of performance art, illustrating the quandary of the nearly great thinker who feels unfairly defined by never having won a MacArthur grant. I'm no expert in this, but it seems like the worst possible thing you can do with those people would be to self-consciously court their approval. Oh, you mean like that documentary filmmaker, cultural anthropologist, cutting-edge violin maker, squid scientist, poet in Woods Hole? That guy? Believe me, they see right through that guy. This is it! They're calling! And you're here for this moment! That is so great for you! You can tell your grandkids... Hello? Uh Uh-huh. Wolf? Yes, it's me. Yes, tomorrow at 3.30 for a teeth cleaning with Dr. Huddleston. Yes, I, I had that in my book. Thank you for the reminder. So glad I was here for that. Shut up. <laughs> Today on The Scramble, marriage, parenthood, drifting, planning, and social mobility. And then a conversation about those pesky genius grants. And now he spent all his MacArthur money on firecrackers and comic books. Colin McEnroe. Yes, and just to be clear, actually, the MacArthur Grant Day was a, a few weeks ago. Uh, so you already didn't get a MacArthur Grant, if that's what you're thinking. Uh, you can look forward to next year when you also will not get a MacArthur Grant. It's not that I don't think that you're a genius if you're listening to this show. I think you are a genius, but I know how this works. It's who you know. Anyway, we're going to come to that later on The Scramble. Welcome to our show today. We're a little disoriented because we were displaced. from. There's a whole remodeling project going on around us. And Things that we are used to looking at are not there, and there's walls missing and light streaming in, and it's it's a little frightening. It's surprising how much what you are accustomed to physically becomes your definition of reality because this feels very surreal. Anyway, that's that's a topic for another show. Uh, we're going to begin with Isabel Sahil. You may have been uh, reading uh, about her or things by her. There's been a lot in the news lately. Her new book is called Generation Unbound. She's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and, as I said, author of many books, really, but most recently, Generation Unbound. We're going to be talking to her in the first two segments here uh, about demographic trends in, in marriage and parenthood and then kind of what that means and, and how to structure the way that we live 
within some of those curves, uh, some of those statistical curves that, that are very interesting. All right, Isabel um, uh, Sawhill, thank you so much for joining us t- uh, today on The Scramble. Uh, my pleasure. All right, so let's begin kind of at the statistical beginning. So um, as as we look at trends in marriage, and not, not only American marriage, but from what I can tell, just doing a little bit of reading for, for this, um, this is paralleled pretty closely in a lot of indu- other industrialized countries. The, there's, there's pretty steep downward lines pointing away from marriage as a norm starting, I don't know, somewhere around 1960? Uh, I think that's right. Um, the um, The institution seems to be almost disappearing as we watch. Uh, right now, if you look at the uh, proportion of all children in America that are born outside of marriage, it's 40%. And for the youngest generation, those under the age of 30, it is now over 50% of all children, all babies, are born outside of marriage. So when we say it's almost disappearing, I mean, it's a little bit of a hyperbole. People realize it's not because they go to weddings all the time. But what we're really saying, I think, is the notion of marriage as a norm, particularly marriage as a precondition to parenthood, as kind of a norm from which anything else is regarded as a deviation, that's really what's been jeopardized, if not obliterated. I think the way you say it is exactly right. And uh, we shouldn't... um pretend that it's disappeared entirely. It hasn't. It's at some kind of tipping point. Half the people are still marrying. Uh, There is, in addition, this class divide. Uh, Most of the people who are still marrying are people who are very well educated and reasonably well off. Uh, The people who are not marrying are everyone else. Now, there, are, there isn't just one reason uh, for this. And, and as I said at the beginning, uh, whatever the reasons are, they're probably not all that explicitly tied to American mores and policies because, in fact, this is going on in other parts of the world. But as we look around for reasons for this trends, or trend, what do we see? Well, I think one thing uh, that's happened is that marriage used to be an institution that helped to support women and children before uh, women had the kinds of opportunities that they have today to earn their own um, income and to have uh, roles beyond those of just being a wife and a mother. And there's been really a revolution in um, uh, opportunities for women, and that, I think, has undermined the rationale for marriage. So that's one factor. Uh, Another, I think, is that for men, especially men without a lot of education, um, the job market is not very good these days. Their earnings are not as high as they used to be after adjusting for inflation. And so some people say, well, men, the men that are available to these women aren't, uh, aren't up to snuff, aren't as marriageable as they used to be. And then I think another reason, which is very important, is just a massive shift in social norms. I mean, you already alluded to it. It's the fact that uh, it used to be if a child was born outside of marriage, we called that child illegitimate. Uh, We don't anymore. It's uh, not a big deal any longer to have a child outside of marriage. 
you know, it, it, we should talk about the socioeconomic difference, socioeconomic differences here, because okay, so this this one cohort that you're talking about right now, uh, a group of women who have a little bit more control over their economic destiny, maybe even a lot more control over their economic destiny. They can sort of pick and choose, and they can even put the cart and the horse in different orders too. They can think, well, you know, maybe I mean I, I I've been to weddings like this too, where one or two of the kids this couple uh, has had uh, are part of the wedding party. They decided. They would do that having kids thing first and then uh, maybe eventually decide to get married. Uh, there are a lot of things you can do in that vein if you have certain kinds of resources and, and the ability to support yourself and, and you can make decisions about whether to have a kid and have no husband in the picture, all, all kinds of things like that. But for the people who don't have socioeconomic advantages, then those kinds of revolutions, uh, I would assume, are less consequential. And the reason they would be having children out of wedlock would be different reasons. Well, I think it's quite complicated because, after all, uh, if you have two incomes coming into the household or twice as much time with which to take care of your kids, uh, you're going to be better off than if you only have one. So the whole argument that um, economics uh, describes why people aren't marrying, Mm -hmm. when you think about the fact that marriage is one of the quickest ways to enhance your household's income, it uh, doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But I think what you're referring to is the fact that uh, marriage has come to symbolize uh, culturally having arrived in life. Uh, it used to be that it was the foundation or the cornerstone of putting a life together. You started out with another person and you worked together to uh, move up into the middle class, let's say. And now it seems to be just something you do as uh, icing on the cake after you've already arrived. So um, imagine that, uh, imagine a couple in their uh, mid-20s and they they do have uh, at least one child. Um, Is there, in terms of the course of their relationship and and their family unit, um, they're a couple with a child uh, over five or ten years. uh, Are there predictive models for how things are going to go if they are married as opposed to not married but maybe living together? Yes, this is a really interesting point, because a lot of people uh, say quite rightly that what difference does it make whether uh, people are married or not, as long as they're together and raising their children uh, as a um, joint venture. And uh, we have seen a big increase in uh, cohabitation. But the problem is that these cohabiting relationships are not very stable. By the time the child uh, of such a relationship is age five, half of them will have split up. And a very large proportion of them will have gone on to form a new partnership and have children with a new partner. So this is not a good uh, environment for kids. And so cohabitation is not just another form of marriage, at least not the way it's practiced in the United States right now. You know, we, we look at these trends, and I'm, I'm wondering uh, if there are any silver linings in them. One silver lining that strikes me is it, it, it may be that we are on the verge of getting rid of or at least radically decreasing the notion of, of the man doing the honorable thing by the woman. And, and it, you know, so there are an awful lot of marriages that happened because somebody got pregnant, and then there was a tremendous amount of social pressure from the family, from the surrounding society. These two people should get married, even though their actual relationship may have been a far more 
casual one than that. And it always strikes me anyway that there's something a little bit doomed about that kind of union. So if, in fact, the social pressure to do that thing has decreased, I don't know, is it possible that that at least is a good thing? Well, I think it is. I think it's in general, it's good that people have more choices than they used to. Uh, it used to be uh, that if you uh, had a child outside of marriage, it, it was stigmatized. Uh, and uh, so there was this pressure to have uh, what you just uh, called, um, uh, you know, a, a, a marriage under, under pressure. We used to call them shotgun right. marriages because the idea was there was a father of the girl out there somewhere who was going to shoot the guy if he didn't marry uh, the daughter. Um, but uh, that's that's gone, and I think that uh, that's good. I think we shouldn't be stigmatizing um, parents who have children outside of marriage uh, because there's a whole lot of it right now. On the other hand, I think what we need to do is substitute some kind of new norm. If the old norm was... Um, don't have children outside of marriage, I think the new norm needs to be uh, don't have a child until you and your partner are really ready to have a child and are prepared to do uh, all of the things that good parents do for their kids. Um, actually, so we're gonna, we're about to get into the whole issue, uh, to use a couple of your terms of art here, of uh, drifters versus planners, drifting versus planning. This might be a good uh, place for us to grab a really quick break, uh, come back with more of, of Isabel Sawhill. We'll get into that whole idea of a new form of planning after this. All right, we're back. This is The Scramble. We're talking to Isabel Sawhill. Uh, she's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, the author of most recently the book Generation Unbound. So, um, Isabel Sawhill, you know, we're, t- we're about to talk about planning versus drifting in terms of um, having a child and, and how a couple decides when and how, under what circumstances to have a child. But maybe in doing that, we have that cart uh, slightly before the horse. Maybe the first conversation we need to have is about birth control itself, because that certainly is part of planning. And And one thing that was clear even during the debate over the Affordable Care Act is we don't really have a national consensus around birth control, what kind of status it occupies uh, as medicine, uh, how available it it ought to be, uh, and and even which kinds of birth control work and don't work. Isn't that the first step if we're going to have a conversation about planning? Uh, I think it is, and uh, this is a big topic that you've introduced here. Let me start with the uh, planning versus drifting part of the conversation. I mean, right now, um, there is just a huge amount of what I call in my book, Generation Unbound, uh, drifting into parenthood. And by that, I mean people are not planning. They're having children that they themselves say they either didn't want or children that came way too soon. And for unmarried uh, young adults under the age of 30, 70% of all pregnancies and 60% of all births are unintended, either unwanted or seriously mistimed. And um, many times people may be a little ambivalent about whether to have children, which is why I use the term drifting. 
because uh, they're not really planning, but they may not necessarily be terribly unhappy when the child arrives. So it's a it's a mixed picture. But I think in general, it's it's not an auspicious beginning for any child, and it does lead to a lot of problems down the road that we just discussed a few minutes ago, such as the couple breaking up before the child is age five and going on to have other partners and other children and so forth. So one of the things we probably want to do right away is educate uh, fairly young people about birth control and, and maybe make the most effective kinds of birth control, some of which are a little bit more expensive or even a lot more expensive, available as available as we can to so that so that they can be used and 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 I mean I'm actually that's all kind of code for IUDs I think uh but uh, so that they yeah. can be so they they can be there in place so that you're not having to make these kinds of decisions uh, about having a child under the pressure of being pregnant. Well, I think that's right and I think that there's um a lack of information about this amongst the general public, even the pretty well-informed uh, public. Uh, most people think, well, if you use a condom or you use the pill, everything will be fine. And uh, certainly it's better than not using uh, anything. Uh, by the way, there are a lot of young people who are not using any birth control at all. But amongst those that are, they're mainly using either the, uh, a condom or the pill. And uh, if you're talking about a couple that's going to be sexually active for uh, a number of years, uh, which they will be before they marry, um, then because we don't get married uh, in our early 20s anymore. We get married in our late 20s. So people are going to be sexually active before they get married. And if you're relying on the condom alone, you and your partner, the chances that you will get pregnant over a five-year period are 63% using the condom. It's 38% over five years using the pill. And there are more effective methods, such as IUDs. And for an IUD, the risk is under 2% over five years. So it really makes a huge difference. A difference what form of contraception you're you're using. And as you say, that's a big long conversation. And IUDs cost m- more money. At least uh, I don't know o- over the life of the IUD that that's necessarily true. But uh, the the you know the startup cost is high. With the startup I- cost is 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 much higher. The long term cost is actually lower. Yeah, I mean that would sort of stand to reason. So. Um, but so let's kind of leapfrog over that for a second. And so let's imagine uh, a young couple, uh, Tom and Gina, and they've more or less done what they can about the birth control uh, situation. Uh, and they do, they're not under pressure from a monolithic culture to get married, to get married right away, to get married before they even think about uh, starting a family. Uh, but we do want them to plan. We want them to plan, not drift. So what does that amount to in, in your world? Well, let me say that uh, I think marriage is still a very uh, important institution and is still a very good way to uh, make the kind of serious long-term commitment to another person that's going to be uh, best for for children and probably best for the adults as well. So I'm not dismissing marriage out of hand. I'm just trying to be realistic about where we are as a society and suggesting that we do need it to add to uh, our, you know, enthusiasm about marriage if we're still if we still like it, some some uh, additional 
uh, counseling of young adults to uh, stop drifting and to start planning. Uh, if you are a young adult in your early 30s, let's say, and you're in a good job and you haven't found uh, Mr. Wright uh, uh, or Ms. Wright, for that matter, and you decide you want to have a child on your own and you have the ability and desire to have that child, uh, I mean, ability to care for it and the desire, to, strong desire to have it, that child, I think, would probably be better off with two involved parents, but with only one, it's not the, it's not the end of the world. Um, and there are many single parents who are not single parents by choice. So I don't think we should be dogmatic about these things, but uh, I came at this from a background in looking at issues of poverty, inequality, and social mobility in the United States, and I believe this uh, a large amount of drifting we have amongst young adults right now is causing a much higher poverty, poverty rate, less social mobility, more inequality, and that we need to do something about it. Over the long term, we ought to improve our education system. We ought to have jobs available, et cetera. But in the meantime, this is something we can do right now, uh, and it will actually save the American taxpayer money if we are having fewer children um, born unintentionally to young people who really can't afford it and didn't want it in the first place. Um, we only have about five more minutes to talk about this. If you want to call in at 860-275-7266, I would try to get a call on the air. We're talking to Isabel Sarhill. Sarhill her current book is Generation Unbound. So what we're talking about here, and, and I'm with you every step of the way, I might add, but it's a minefield. It's a conversational minefield when you start talking about stuff like this. If I go on the air today and I say, really, you know, what, they, what we ought to do as a society, particularly as we look at the 20 or 30 percent most disadvantaged a portion of our population uh, is go into schools in poverty-stricken areas and really provide a lot of pl- family planning, not only in terms of information, but really provide the actual devices themselves uh, and really work on this problem because there's no surer way to cripple a young woman socioeconomically than to saddle her with a baby before she's really ready for it and no way, surer way to stick that baby into a cycle of poverty than to have have that baby be born before anybody's really ready to to accommodate uh, that child in that child's life. If you do that, I mean, you, you can have people coming at you from both sides of the political spectrum. You can have people on the left saying, wow, that sounds like social engineering and like somehow or other this whole class of people shouldn't be allowed to propagate uh, that there's some huge uh, strike against them in that regard. Uh, and, and then, of course, you've got people over on the right saying we shouldn't be teaching uh, family planning or birth control or, or the government shouldn't be involved in subsidizing it. So I don't know, how, how has it been for you navigating that particular minefield? Well, it, it is a minefield, and I'm getting some criticism from both right and left. But I think that that's because um, we haven't thought enough about this, and we need a, a, a national conversation about it. That's one of the things that motivated me to write the book is because I wanted to catalyze this debate and discussion. And I don't think it has to be um, lead to the kind of boogeyman that both the right and the left are are describing. Uh, On the left, you're right, there are going to be some uh, people, some groups who say, oh, 
you're trying to tell uh, poor women and women of color and other disadvantaged groups what to do. Mm. And I'm not saying that at all. I'm pointing out that the rates of unintended pregnancy and birth amongst these groups are already three and four times as high as they are amongst the more privileged. Uh, So we need to empower those women to do what they themselves say they want to do, which is to have fewer children and to have them later. Uh, So this is all about uh, voluntary access and reducing the cost, making it affordable, and empowering women uh, and other young young adults, men as well, to, to do what they say they want to do. On the right, um, I am not against marriage. I am saying it is better to enter marriage, uh, not um, at the point of a shotgun, to use your earlier metaphor, uh, but only after you're really ready uh, to make a commitment and before you have children and when you're mature enough to form a stable relationship with another uh, person. Let me ask you one last question, then we actually have to go. But um, how how hopeful, I mean, w- one way to look at demographics is, well, it, this is just what happens, you know, and, and there isn't too much that you can do. You're like King Canute trying to command the tide. I mean, how much of an impact on these pretty massive trends do you think any person or policy can ever have? Well, I'm in favor of, uh, you know, all kinds of longer-term solutions to this problem of poverty and inequality in our society, uh, more opportunity-enhancing programs, uh, some uh, reasonable kind of safety net. But uh, I think that those programs aren't going to have any big impacts anytime soon. They're also very expensive. And uh, this is something, uh, empowering women with new forms of uh, contraception are something is something we can do right now. It's something that is going to save money, not cost money. Uh, great to uh, improve the K through 12 education system. In the long term, that's the solution. But we've been trying to do that for decades without a lot of success. True. Isabel Sahil, I don't mean to interrupt you, but we actually yeah. do have to go. The book is Generation Unbound. So great to talk to you. We do have a little fun break, uh, fundraising break coming up here. I urge you, if you are going to pledge, do it. If you love this show, pledge during this break because it really helps us, obviously, and raises our profile here at the radio station. Time to take my birth control. I love you, baby, but I don't want you, baby, so I'll take my birth control. the first Monday in October, I have Alito on my Supreme Court fantasy team this year. Feeling good about that. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our intern is Jackie Filson. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Julie Taymor. For show pages, articles, and Faith Middleton show staff recipes for whole roasted suckling puppet, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, Steven Pinker heads up a show about language. And now... Back to Colin. All right. Let me tell you about our next guest. Thomas Frank is uh, for Salon, a politics and culture columnist. Point of disclosure, I often write for Salon. His many books include What's the Matter with Kansas, Pity the Billionaire, and One Market Under God. He's a very influential voice in America about politics and culture. What he is not, I regret to say, and it's awkward, but what he is not 
is a genius. Uh, and I know this because he does not have a MacArthur grant. I am also not a genius. I don't have a MacArthur grant. Isabel Sahil, who was just on, is also not a genius. It makes me wonder why you're listening to this radio show when there are so many documented geniuses running around uh, making puppets and, and, and violin bows and mathematical proofs and, and inventing entire new materials atom by atom. Why are you listening to this radio show that doesn't have any geniuses on it? Uh, I can't imagine. However, Thomas Frank, like me, studies very carefully every year the list of MacArthur grants the so-called genius grants. And he's trying to figure out what exactly is going on here. He's got a new article in Salon about that. Welcome to our show. And how are you today? I'm fine from one non-genius to another. I'm, I'm just <laughs> fine. I'm not bitter. I don't feel excluded. Obviously, those things are not true. I feel bitter and very excluded. So one of the things you've been trying to figure out, I, I gather, is First of all, whether there's any rhyme or reason to this. I mean, we have this, this uh, there are lots of prizes given out in America, but there's something special about this, and it has to do a little bit with the iconography and pageantry of the phone call you get, and it has something to do with the cachet that we've projected onto the MacArthur Grants. But I think one thing you're suggesting, too, is that the MacArthur Grants and the grantors themselves are quite self-conscious about their own ca- cachet. Oh, Yeah. Absolutely, and uh, but but you've you've overlooked a a, a really important uh, one of the the things that makes it so appealing, which is just the enormous amount of money yes. that comes with it. Oh, I didn't I didn't want to suggest that it comes down to money, but it absolutely does. Oh, some... <laughs> I have no, there's no doubt in my mind that it does. If you go down the history of prizes, you know, uh, the, one of the the ways in which I approach this subject is looking at people who've refused um, prestigious honors over the years. Mm-hmm. So Sinclair Lewis very famously turned down the Pulitzer Prize in the 20s, and John Paul Sartre, you know, turned down the Nobel. And there are other examples of people doing this. And if you go back and look at why they did it, it's because they are, you know, they, they've they've decided to sort of turn their back on the whole prize-winning apparatus. Well, that that never happens with the MacArthur Grant. Nobody nobody turns it down. And in fact, if you read, you know, the, the reason they don't obviously is because the money that I mentioned before it's something like six hundred grand uh, that goes with it nowadays. But if you read in the, uh, there, there's this great book uh, came out about ten years ago called the the what is it, the Economy of Prestige, about the prize industry. And you probably, it probably never occurred to you to look into this, but once you start digging around about the prize, you know, looking into the prizes that are available out there, there are thousands, thousands and thousands and thousands. And certain um, you know, people who set up prize-granting programs confront certain problems, and they, they all have the same problems. And one of, the, one of the problems is people who will turn the prize down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, well, the MacArthur people have figured out a way around that, haven't they? You just attach so much money to it. You and, know. and we should make it clear. So uh, for uh, people who, who don't follow this, um, it's uh, every year it's announced there's 20 or so uh, people working in almost um, a perverse, perversely eclectic array of fields yeah. get, the, get these awards. It's $625,000. I'm not sure that there's whether there's a prize ceremony. There probably is. But mainly the, it's the day of the announcement. And then they've gotten these phone calls telling them the, that this has happened. And then they get the money and there's no strings attached, no Nobody ever makes them fill out a form saying, you know, they can spend it all on whores and firecrackers for for all anybody (laughs) cares, right? Nobody ever asks them any questions about what they're going to do with it. And that also, I think, uh, Thomas Frank, is another great thing about it. 
Well, that actually is, I mean, that's on, on the plus side. And, you know, my article is, is fairly critical of the whole thing. But you can see very easily what a, what a great idea this was or is, you know, at, at, in the beginning anyways. The idea of giving, uh, you know, a, a large sum of money, no strings attached to someone who hasn't filled out a single form in order to get it. That's great. So you're going to be, you know, potentially reaching out to all of these people that aren't part of the usual foundation round, you know, that aren't part of academia, that don't know how to fill out a grant, uh, a grant application, uh, you know. And some people, I mean, let's we all, you and I both work in in, in similar fields. I mean, I used to be in academia, and you're in uh, in public radio. There are some people who are really, really good at grant writing, and they get <laughs> they get the grants. You know, this is well known. The thing about the MacArthur, uh, the Genius Award, is that it could, you know, uh, in theory, go to not those people. Now, unfortunately, it does go to those people. <laughs> if you, if there's two two things that leap out at you if you study the history of who got the MacArthur Fellowship. One is that you know, if you if you like take every name that gets it every year and enter their name into Wikipedia, which is, by the way, very easy because Wikipedia has a really elaborate MacArthur Fellowship winner page, you will see that these are people who have already won, you know, most of our society's prestigious, you know, prestigious prizes. They're the kind of people who routinely get uh, big grants from foundations, the government, from uh, the university that employs them. A lot of them are tenured professors. In other words, these are people that don't need it, you know. And the other thing that you notice is what you pointed out before. It's random. Mm -hmm. You know, the fields that are represented, this is the part of it that just, you know, when I started writing this essay, it was driving me crazy. I couldn't figure it out. What is the pattern here? You know, the, the, there are people from all different sciences, I mean, some really obscure sciences, uh, people studying, you know, sort of social policy in uh, out-of-the-way places, uh, a lot of literary figures, but never the sort of uh, the very you know topmost literary figures, and but never obscure ones either. Always people who've got these prizes, you know, like I said, and um, you know all over the place. Lots of of uh, choreographers for whatever reason. And what I finally decided is that this this is just random. You know who they're who they're giving it out to. There is there is no pattern here. And then, okay, so I'm going to stop there and let and let you let you get a word in. Well, I mean, I think there is no pattern. There are patterns, right? Right, that's and, right. So one of them is there's sort of a throwback thing. I mean, I, I, there's somebody who's doing something kind of almost relentlessly artisanal, uh, and it's not every single. It's not. <laughs> that's right. It's not every yeah. year, but it's like one guy who's making violin bows the old way, or there was wasn't there a guy who was hand making paper. Yes, I, that's funny that you mentioned that. I, that's that I, I left that out of the article. I thought that was, you know, but there, there is that that tendency. There's a lot of that. There's like I said. There's a lot of the choreography. If you read their, um, if you read the MacArthur Foundation's descriptions of the winners, uh, the language is always very similar, right? They're always people who are supposedly defying convention, but at the same time, they're really well rooted in a discipline, and they're always uh, their achievement is always uh, hybridizing you know, two fields. It's always what it is. You know, that for some reason that that idea of, you know, he's combining this with that, you know, Western with Eastern, high with low, that, that idea, for whatever reason, has this kind of hypnotic, you know, power over the foundation mind. And so they're always described that way. I, I also wonder about the whole question of, um, I mean, that whole question of sort of, you know, are these people who are already sufficiently 
covered with laurels. I think you're probably right about that. And it sounds like you've done uh, even more research than I have. All of my research is very cranky and resentful and, and very, you know, dog in the <laughs> you manger. you got to get over that, yeah. man. Yeah. No, but, and, um, well, I was influenced also tremendously. Roy Blunt Jr. years ago wrote an essay about not getting a Genius Award, and he was pretty sure it was because he'd done a beer commercial, and he was cons- <laughs> he thought he maybe had commercialized himself too much. And then he was very, he was imagining Stephen Jay Gould, who had won one. You know, if he saw Stephen Jay Gould and a bunch of pandas doing a beer commercial together, he was going to be really, <laughs> really angry about this. But, you know, I, I think one thing we notice is the fields that we know— pretty well. You know, we have kind of a sense of where these people rank. And so, you know, I would say some of the writers who have run that won this award, really, they really are people who don't need it. I mean, Robert Penn Warren. Yeah, that's that's pretty much the worst example. And ironically, was in the very first class of MacArthur winners in 1981. And that's, you know, supposedly when they were when when when, you know, they were the people who had devised this were able to hand it out to people who weren't well recognized. By the time when Robert Penn Warren got one, he had won the Pulitzer Prize three times. Well, and Thomas freaking Pynchon, he doesn't need it. Oh, I know. Spray. And uh, by the way, Pynchon is another <laughs> is a very interesting question. Pynchon was sort of notorious in the 70s for turning down prizes, making fun of prizes. When he got the National Book Award, he sent a comedian to uh, accept it for him, and the guy—it's kind of a fan, you know. It was Professor Professor Irwin Corey, right? Yeah, 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 you know about uh, this. Yeah, uh, the guy uh, with his stream of double talk—very, very, very uh, hilarious, uh, you know, acceptance speech. Uh, but th- but when he got the MacArthur, uh, uh, no problem at all. You know, he just he signed, he he took it, and that was that. Well, I think the other part of this, um, Thomas Frank, before we run out of time, is another reason that we focus on this a lot is because because we don't really know anything about the process. I mean, other awards like the Pulitzer and stuff like that, I mean, you know, you can find things out about what went on in the yeah. jury oh, and, and stuff like Pulitzer that. The Pulitzer is so dirty, and everybody, it's been criticized. <laughs> For well, ever since it started, for because it's so politicized and uh, you know it's 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 an award. I'm in the journalism business. It's an award that is that is not regarded very highly, you know, by people in the business. Ah, what, what what am I saying? Maybe it is. What do I know? But the MacArthur, we have no idea right. how these people are 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 chosen and how they're settled upon. And so what I finally compared the whole thing to, it's like this sort of uh, Calvinist notion of of, of <laughs> salvation right yeah, election, the mind right. of god is unknowable to us right and and uh, you know and and it's it, it's um it's omniscient he understands every discipline you know mm. and one day you just it is announced to you that you are among the saved it comes to this you know and and think of the way uh, that we worship the phone call or not worship the phone call but focus in all macarthur coverage focus on the, on the phone call that the winner gets you know this random phone call from out of the blue it's like uh it's like calvin the calvinist idea of salvation no one was expecting it what do you know their hard work has paid off <laughs> right, although the Calvinists believed even that hard work wouldn't necessarily do that for Not you. Not necessarily, so. but it's a good sign. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's exactly a good sign. So I'll, I'll tell you a really quick story here. Uh, now that you know my own psychological baggage about this, this is a, I just happened to be a few weeks ago. Uh, I was invited to go to some someplace, and I said I couldn't go. Uh, it's something that's ha- actually happening next weekend. I said I can't go, and it was somebody from New York who was asking me, and, and she said, why not? And I said, well, I have to be in this thing, and it's it's by this this pageant that's done by this uh, woman named Ann Cubberly. She lives uh, here in Hartford. She's a kinetic sculptor and puppeteer. I said, she's the only person I really know who should get a MacArthur grant. And, and the woman on the phone said, oh, well, actually, I know some of the nominators. Tell me your name. And I'm thinking, 
wait a minute, I'm suddenly John Alden in this story. Uh, you know, yeah. so I had to. Sp- I, I, well, in the course of researching this, I talked to several people who who. Uh, they weren't nominators, but they'd been consulted by. It. It's all academia, is what I figured out. It's you know that's who that's who does the um, the uh, the nominating and the consulting. So I wound up spelling very carefully the name of somebody else to get the MacArthur Grant when I really want one. So it was kind of a milestone, just John Alden. Uh, well, it, the, look, that is the sh- everyone knows that's the shortcut to getting prizes is to serve on prize juries. Yeah, wow, absolutely. I mean, this is a completely uh, 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 incestuous industry. (laughs) Well, we encourage everybody to read uh, Genius Grant or TED Talk does a MacArthur Grant make a genius smarter. One of the things Thomas Frank found out is it's supposed to inspire people that these things exist. Uh, To me, it just uh, triggers a slew of despond. Yeah, I was going to say, they should study people like me who is the opposite of inspiration. Right. What's the point of doing anything if you're not a genius? It's so random. Yeah, I mean. it's like Calvin. It's again like the Calvinist conception of the Almighty, right? You're all we're all supposed to be inspired, and even though we don't know if we're ever going to get one, you know, it's we're supposed to be true to the faith. Yeah, and now you have to sort of think. Well, I I could be the first person to turn it down, but I, I won't be. <laughs> yeah. I won't be. You no, won't wait, that's be. That's going to be me. Yeah, man. no, we know ourselves well enough <laughs> to know that is absolutely not going to be the case. We're not going to be the people who turn it down. Thomas Frank, th- uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Anytime. All right. So um, I have to tell you what's coming up here uh, in just a minute or two. Some very nice people are going to talk to you about pledging to the station. Uh, I do encourage you to pledge to the station, generally speaking. Mr. Dankowski and I were on this morning trying to get people to pledge to the station. But it really is helpful if you do it now. (laughs) It's like really helpful if you do it now because that means you like our show enough to pledge while we're on the air doing that. So um, thanks very much for listening today. We're going to be back tomorrow with no interruption-free tomorrow. A really interesting show about language. We'll have time for your phone calls, too. Thanks for listening today. And as I say, think about pledging now. Okay, maybe this is it. Kyone Wolf. No, thank you. Add me to the do not call list. Bye. Kyone Wolf. I'm not interested in talking about who I'm voting for. Bye. Kyone Wolf. You're calling for the MacArthur Credit Reporting Agent. Okay, go ahead. And the number to call to make your pledge to uh, support programs like the Colin McEnroe Show is 1-800-584-2788. I'm Patrick Scahill. I'm here with Lee Newton. And we just heard Kion Wolf there at the end of the show, as we do every single day, uh, right before 2 o'clock. If you appreciate that, we do have a thank you gift for you that you might like. It's for a gift of $120 or $10 a month. You can get Kion Wolf to do your voicemail. She'll record a voicemail message for you. Uh, You can get more information about that on our website. It's WNPR.org. But uh, our time is short right now, so I'll pass it off to Lee. And I do want to thank people who have already called in. We uh, got uh, some nice pledges earlier. Janice from West Hartford, Robert from Oxford. We also heard from folks in Norwich, Hamden, uh, West Hartford, East Haven, Middletown. But how about you? Have you called yet? Have you gone online and supported the Colin McEnroe Show? It's a show been here five years. We just celebrated the anniversary. And we love how unique, how wonderful this program is, how it it sparks conversation for you, for your family, your friends. 
that's important to you and you'd like to see this show continue, it's more important than ever that you support it right now, either by going to WNPR.org or dialing us up at 1-800-584-2788. And as Lee was saying, uh, the show did just celebrate its five-year anniversary. This is a show that we've been able to do because folks like you have picked up the phone, called, and become members or renewed your membership here at the station. If you've done that already, thank you. Uh, If you haven't yet, if you've been waiting for this fall drive, now is the time. It's 1-800-584-2788. We have lots of ways to say thank you. And of course, you can always uh, donate online at wnpr.org slash donate. You can see our thank you gifts there. Uh, But if you are by your phone or if you have your cell and you're on on, uh, lunch break right now and not driving, give us a call. It's (laughs) 1-800-584-2788. That's right. Be safe. Um, Of course, you can call us. A couple people um, earlier picked up the Colin McEnroe mug, which is something obviously you can only find here. $5 $5 a month uh, as an ongoing monthly donor or a $60 one-time gift, and we will send you that very handsome mug with uh, a beautiful uh, drawing of Colin on the side. So if you'd like to have it, call us right now. And we can also send you, uh, this is probably the most popular gift that we have during these fall campaigns. It's the 24-inch uh, L.L. Bean balsam wreath. Uh, it's four mm-hmm. pounds of greenery. There's real pine cones on it, reindeer moss. It's for a pledge of $10 a month or a one-time gift of $120. And the nicest thing about this is it ships in late November. Uh, so you can send it to someone as a holiday gift, or you can you know order it now and know that your holiday decorations, at least on the outside of your house, will be will be partially taken care of. I mean, I don't, you can decorate as much as you want, but you'll have the wreath that'll be taken care of. That's right, and you will also have taken care of your contribution to the Colin McEnroe Show at one eight hundred five eight four twenty seven eighty eight or going to wmpr.org. This is a program we're so proud of. He does an amazing job of every day bringing you interesting new topics. I know it's something you learn from and enjoy. So support it right now. 1-800-584-2788. And thanks.